happy Family Worship Sunday. Uh, children, we're so glad that you're in here. Moms, dads, please don't feel uh, embarrassed or any sort of pressure if your kids are loud or wiggly or anything like that. That is okay. We totally expect that, and uh, that's just part of doing life as a family. Totally get that. Also, lots of sickness going around the last week, uh, so I pray the Lord sustains you and keeps you from getting ill, as my family has been dealing with a lot the last week. All right, if you want to open your Bibles uh, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read from uh, verse 10 all the way to chapter 4, verse 5. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 4, 5. Um, my name is Garrison. I'm the pastor, or one of the pastors, here at Veritas Dayton. Uh, we're very glad that you're here, if this is your first time here. Uh, we're starting a brand new five-week sermon series this morning called Here We Stand. Here We Stand. And the reason that we're doing this is to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. 500 years ago, this movement that we call the Protestant Reformation began. And uh, the reason that we celebrate this as a church is because of what was recovered in this movement called the Protestant Reformation. Uh, What was recovered was uh, the belief in the ultimate authority of the Word of God. What was recovered was the belief in the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, What was recovered is that the Word of God is our final authority as a church and as Christians and and, uh, what we're supposed to believe and and how we're supposed to live together. Uh, that, That what defines that is not what man says, but what God says. And what was recovered is that God's grace for our rescue, our redemption, our salvation comes to us not because we've earned it or deserved it, but because Jesus earned it for us perfectly uh, in his life and gave it, shares it with us when he died his death on the cross in this once for all sacrifice. And these wonderful truths that were recovered were later put into five summary statements that we call the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Now, that word sola might be a weird word to you, and that's because it's not an English word. It's actually a Latin word that means only or alone. And, uh, and these five solas are five summary statements that kind of summarize uh, the, the, the central truths recovered in the Protestant Reformation. Here's what they are. You can see them up on the screen. Sola Scriptura, that just simply means Scripture alone. Uh, soli Deo Gloria, uh, that means the glory of God alone. Uh, solo Gratia, which means grace alone. Sola Fide, which means faith alone. And then Solus Christus, or Solo Christo, you, you might hear it put both ways, uh, and that means Christ alone. Christ alone. And together what these five summary statements declare to us is that Scripture alone is our final authority and that the Scriptures declared to us that God created and redeemed us for His glory alone and that the way He saves us and redeems us is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's what these five solas declare to us. And that's what we're going to be looking at and unpacking in the next five weeks. We're going to be looking at several scripture texts in the New Testament to unpack those kind of rally cries of the Protestant Reformation. And this morning, we're going to look at scripture alone. And then the following week, we'll look at God's glory alone. And then grace alone, then faith alone, then Christ alone. Next week, we'll have a uh, guest from Louisville coming up to preach, which we're very much looking forward to. 
Uh, and, and, and we're just, we're really excited about this. We're doing this not because it's a really cool thing or a good thing that happened a long time ago, but because these doctrines, these solas, are just as relevant now as they were 500 years ago. Uh, we're doing this because there's not a single person that has too much assurance of their salvation. There's not a one of us that has too much peace in our conscience. There's not a one of us that, that has uh, too much freedom in the gospel. There's not one of us that's been too enamored and obsessed with the glory of God. And there's not one of us uh, who's been too amazed at who God is and what he's done for us. And so as we look at the five solas in the next five weeks, I'm praying that the Lord would take these beautiful and precious truths and that he would strengthen our faith that he would quiet an accusing conscience in the room. Lord, that, that, that he would give us an even bigger vision of the glory of God and that he would rekindle our commitment to the authority of God's holy and precious word just like he did 500 years ago. And so this morning, we're gonna dig into 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16, if you wanna stand with me for the reading of God's word, we'll read from 3.10 to 4.5, but we're narrowing in on verse 16. Let's listen to the word of the Lord. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless the reading and the preaching and the teaching of your word with the presence and power of your Holy Spirit? Would you pour out your spirit on us, we pray, that we may know you, that we may magnify you, expose the thoughts, the intentions of our hearts, comfort those who are dealing with a conscience that is sensing unrest and un lack of peace and, and accusation. Lord, would you build us up with your law, with your gospel, 
with your holy and precious word. Lord, we need you for this work. Would you let the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our rock, our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. On October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago, uh, a nobody preacher in a nobody small town did a completely ordinary and unremarkable thing that completely changed the trajectory of world history. Uh, In the months leading up to this insignificant event, the Roman Catholic Church uh, had been trying to raise money to build a new cathedral in Rome. And the way that they were raising these funds was pretty despicable. Uh, They were telling the poor and needy masses that the Pope would set their deceased relatives free from the fires and sufferings of purgatory if they would only make a donation uh, uh, toward this uh, church and and this cathedral. Uh, The famous line of this really effective preacher of this message, uh, he he went from town to town and, and he would say this to the people, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. He's saying that, that as soon as you make your donation, uh, your relatives, your, your dead relatives are going to be set free from purgatory and go to heaven because the Pope will allow them to do so. And he would tell them, he would tell them this with emotional pleading and manipulation. He would, he would, he would call them to, to hear the, the cries and the screaming and the, and the, and the moaning of their deceased relatives in, in purgatory. And he would describe in, in excruciating detail the suffering that these souls were experiencing in this made-up place called purgatory. And when the circus came to Wittenberg, where Martin Luther lived, preaching this message, it made Martin Luther livid. Uh, he, he pastored people here. He, he knew the people. He loved the people. They, they were the, the, the flock under his care. He loved these people. And so uh, it, when he saw this manipulation, this, this oppression of the people of God, it drove him to pick up his pen and write. And so he wrote up what's called, you may have heard of this, what's often called the 95 Theses, these 95 debates, uh, the, the points of debate. And they were all centered around the corruption and, and manipulation that was taking place in this building fundraiser that the church was, was doing. And on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, he took a hammer, he took some nails, and he nailed up the 95 Theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, this wasn't an altogether uh, unusual thing to do. Um, others did the same. They did so often. The church door was kind of like the, the Wittenberg bulletin board. It was the, the university bulletin board. Uh, educators and clergy would often post things on this door because they wanted to discuss things that were going on in the church and in the empire, and they wanted to, to debate and, and, and wrestle with ideas and, and, and things that they were considering. And this was most certainly Luther's intention. He was wanting to debate with uh, other clergy and scholars in the area. Uh, this is, he, he wrote this document in Latin, not in German, which was the common language of the people. Uh, he wanted to just have a small, quiet debate. But unbeknownst to Martin, the Lord had bigger plans. Someone translated these 95 theses, and they started printing them with this new technology called the printing press. And they started distributing this, uh, these 95 theses to all sorts of people throughout Germany. And it caused quite the ruckus in the empire. Uh, and, and it caused quite a ruckus in the Roman Catholic Church. It led to a number of other things being written and published, and, 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 and it started somewhat of a small movement uh, calling out for some big changes in the church. 
And at first, the, the, the Pope and his cohorts, they just kind of wrote it off. They just kind of shrugged it off. The Pope literally said, this is just the grumblings of a drunken German monk. Uh, he'll get over it in the morning. Uh, but they, he was only half right because Martin kept writing and he kept debating, and people kept printing what he was writing, and, and kept printing what he was discussing, and eventually this movement grew very large, so that they called Martin to this meeting, and threatened him with excommunication, and with possible execution, and not, and, 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 and if he did not recant all of his writings, uh, he would definitely be excommunicated, and he might be executed. He might be killed for his writings, and so they set up a meeting called the Diet of Worms, uh, which doesn't mean that Martin had to eat worms. Uh, it means, diet is just a word that means meeting, and worms was the city that the meeting was in. And at this meeting, the emperor showed up, and, and this bishop wielding the authority of the pope showed up, and they called Luther to recant all of his writings. And to make a long story short, he refused. He refused, and, and he refused to recant. And, this, and this, listen to what he said. This is, this is just so fascinating, and it's, it's very foundational for understanding this movement that we call the Protestant Reformation. Uh, listen to what he said. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scripture or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Now, I would suggest to you that, that this, this declarative statement from Luther is what was driving him the entire time. What drove him to pick up his pen what drove his hammer, what drove him to, to continue with this boldness was, was that he was convicted by and convinced of and his conscience was captive to the word of God. Or in other words, he trusted it completely. He was betting his life on it. He was betting his life on what the word of God said. Because of that, he was willing to put his life on the line, his, his destiny, his temporal, his eternal destiny on what the Bible says. He stood up to the whole world, and he did so boldly because he knew that he was standing on the word of God. He did this with courage and with boldness because he was standing on the word of God, and he knew that the word of God was a sure and certain foundation. And what I want us to understand this morning is that the rally cry of sola scriptura or scripture alone and that unwavering commitment to the word of God isn't just a thing that made for some inspiring stories a long time ago. It's something that's needed today. It's something that's needed in our lives. The challenges to the authority, to the word of God that we face today, they're different to be sure, but there, there are challenges still nonetheless. They're still challenges. They still require boldness and conviction amongst the people of God. We live in a time and place in history where there's increasing pressure to get with the times. We're, we're, we're told that we are living on the wrong side of history so often because we hold to biblical, historic Christian convictions. 
convictions such as the uniqueness and differences between male and female, and that God created uh, man, male and female, and that it was this way from the beginning and will be forever. Convictions uh, such as the, 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 that God created us male and female, and, and convictions that marriage is clearly defined as being between one man and one woman. Uh, convictions such as the reality that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And, and, and there is no other way whatsoever. No one is reconciled to the Father but through Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Convictions such as hell. Hell is hot and real and it goes on for a long time, like forever. These sorts of convictions. But these pressures aren't just coming from outside the church. They're, they're even coming from inside the church. We're dealing with some of those same issues in the church. We're dealing with them largely because we're often more committed to the therapeutic, more committed to entertainment, more uh, committed to consumeristic preferences of the sovereign individual than we are the Bible. Biblical authority in the church in many ways has been abandoned and undermined in our practices, and it's faded from our consciences. The felt needs of Christian consumers has, has often been the guiding factor in the life of the church rather than Scripture and Scripture alone. And so we need to hear afresh this rally cry that resounds from the Bible and that resounded from the Reformers and that needs to be recovered today. The Bible is God's Word, and we can bet our life on God's Word. Because when God speaks, whatever He says is true. Whatever he says is clear. Whatever he says is sufficient. Whatever he says is authoritative. Therefore, we must trust it. We must bet our life on it. Our consciences must be captive to it. And so to kind of summarize that message in a single sentence, this is our big idea this morning. We can bet our lives on the Bible because God speaks truthfully, clearly, sufficiently, and with authority. We can bet our lives on the Bible because God speaks truthfully, clearly, sufficiently, and with authority. Let's dig in. Look at verse 16 again of 2 Timothy. Paul writes to Pastor Timothy, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God. Now I know at first glance, uh, that can be somewhat confusing. But basically what Paul is saying is that scripture is God's word. If, if you want to take your hand and make it flat like this, take your hand and then put it up to your mouth and say, All scripture is breathed out by God. Okay, so, so do you feel, did you feel your breath hitting your hand as you spoke? You, you felt your breath hitting your hand as you spoke. And that's what Paul is saying about the Bible here. He's saying that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. All of Scripture is God's word. It's God speaking. Scripture is God's voice. All of Scripture is God's Word, and you may have heard this referred to before as the inspiration of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture. That's the sort of official doctrinal term that we used to talk about how Scripture is God's Word. And uh, that doesn't mean that Scripture is really inspiring, although it is, it's very inspiring, but that's not what that means. What the inspiration of Scripture means is just to say that, that God, Scripture is God's Word, that the words of Holy Scripture were breathed into men and through men so that the Scriptures are the result of that divine action. Uh, or, or to put it a little differently, more simply again, Scripture is God's voice. The words of Scripture are God's words. They're God's very own words. All of Scripture is God's word. 
Um, some have tried to say that, that the Bible contains God's word, uh, but that, that it's not simply by means of what it is, uh, the, by virtue of what it is, the word of God. But, that's what, but, but what Paul is saying here is, is not that the Bible contains God's word. What he's saying here is that from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books of the Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, these are proceeding from the mouth of God. These, these are God's words. This is God's very own voice speaking to us. And, and Paul, he didn't come up with this idea himself. He's just being a good reader, being a good understander of what Jesus himself said and taught. Remember Matthew 4, 4, Jesus, he's in the wilderness and he's being tempted by Satan when he's fasting in the wilderness. And, and, and instead of giving into this temptation and, and submitting to Satan's words, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by, listen, every word that comes or proceeds from the mouth of God. Literally, he was saying, holy scripture, every word of holy scripture comes from the mouth of God. And that was his food. That was his life. And of course, Jesus was just quoting Moses here from Deuteronomy 8.3. God's people have always seen holy scripture as being God's voice, God's word to his people. And now you might be thinking, okay, wait a moment. Because uh, I, I know that scripture was written by men. It was written by people. So how could this also at the same time be God's word? Uh, and you're, 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 you're right. It was written by men. Uh, this letter, 2 Timothy, that we're looking at right now is written by the Apostle Paul. We just finished looking at Acts last week. That was written by the evangelist Luke. Uh, Deuteronomy, the, the first five books of the Bible uh, that we just uh, quoted here, uh, that, that was written by Moses, a prophet in the Old Testament. And, and every single book of the Bible is written by someone and although uh, they're, they're all united and coherent in their message, they're all different in terms of when they took place historically, the personalities of the men who wrote them. Some were written by wealthy and powerful people. Some were written by poor and, and oppressed people. Some were written by uh, uneducated people. Some by very educated people. Some were written by uh, personalities, type A personalities. Some were written by shy and timid people. Uh, but, and, and some was written by poets and songwriters, some by philosophical, doctrinal minds. Uh, but as 2 Peter 1.21 tells us, nothing in the word of God was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter 1.21. In other words, what Peter's saying is that these men, when they were writing and speaking Holy Scripture, it wasn't their work, it wasn't their will that produced what they wrote. It was the word of God. As they spoke, as they wrote, God was speaking because the Holy Spirit carried them along as they did so. It wasn't this, it wasn't this mechanical sort of thing in, in that they just sat down with a pen and paper and God told them what to write and then they wrote it down although that's definitely possible for some of these, but rather God sovereignly used these, these personalities and their particular time and place to speak divine truth. They were instruments in the hand of God. Uh, I've been listening to this uh, trumpeter, John Raymond, uh, recently. He was a trumpeter in New York City, uh, and he, recording artist, performer, all that. He's more recently in Bloomington, Indiana at Indiana University, uh, and, and we've been listening to him a lot in the Green household recently. We love listening to, to his jazz trumpeter, just uh, absolutely amazing. You should check him out if you like jazz music. Uh, but, but if you want to picture John Raymond, he's coming up to the stage. You can think of this act, this man picking up his trumpet 
and blowing, breathing into his trumpet, and out comes whatever he is willing to come out of it. Out comes his breath into this instrument, and it produces exactly what he wants it to produce. The sound, the most beautiful sound, comes out of his trumpet when he breathes into it. It's this instrument in his hand, and he uses it to, to produce what he wills. And it's, it's not the trumpet producing this, it's John Raymond that's producing this, the breath of John Raymond. And our triune God does a similar work uh, in, in the writing of Holy Scripture, uh, in, in the inspiration of Holy Scripture. He ordains and he sovereignly uses uh, as instruments these prophets, these apostles, these evangelists. Uh, he uses them and breathes in and through them to produce Holy Scripture. These men were the mouthpiece of God. And the Bible, as they wrote it and spoke it, is God's voice to us. It's, the Bible is God's voice. And now because the Bible is God's voice, there's some things that we can conclude about it. There's some things that, that we must believe about it. Uh, namely, that it's true, that it's clear, it's sufficient, and that it's our final authority. Because the Bible is God's voice, it's true, it's clear, it's sufficient, and it's our final authority as God's people. And I just want to walk through these really quickly before we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. First, God speaks truthfully. God is, is perfect in all of his ways. He's true, he's pure, he's good. He can do nothing wrong, he can do nothing dishonest, he can never make a mistake. Therefore, when God speaks, he speaks truthfully, which means that his word is certain, it's true. And, and, and uh, here's the word uh, that's often used to describe this, uh, the sort of technical term to describe it. It's inerrant, it's inerrant, meaning that the Bible is without error. It contains no error. Uh, when, when it tells us about creation, when it tells us about history, about Jesus, about salvation, about what has happened, about what will happen, you can bet your bottom dollar on it because what God says is true. Because God, it's God speaking and he cannot make a mistake. Uh, the second half of verse 16 says that scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And it's profitable in, the, in these ways because it's always Right? We're not always right, but the Bible is always right. Therefore, we need a final standard. We need this final rule by which we measure our lives and beliefs and affections and behavior. We need a sure and certain word from God to instruct us, to teach us, to correct us. And the Bible is that sure and certain word from God. It's true, it's inerrant, it's without error. And that doesn't mean that the Bible is always precise, uh, when recording historical detail, that we might want it to be precise in the ways that we might want it to be precise. Uh, it doesn't mean that our understanding of the Bible is always right, because that's certainly not true. But what it does mean is that we have a sure and certain word from God about who he is, about what he's done for us in Christ, about how we can know him. You don't need to wonder about any of those things. You have a sure and certain word from God because he speaks truthfully. And not only does he speak truthfully, he speaks clearly. He speaks clearly, which is the second truth we can conclude since the Bible is God's voice. And another reason why it's profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness is because the Bible is clear. Uh, the technical doctrinal word for this, uh, for this doctrine is, is uh, it's really difficult. Bear with me. It's the clarity of Scripture. Really complex, I know. But uh, now you have your five cents worth. Uh, but what the clarity of Scripture means is that when God speaks, He speaks to be heard. 
God speaks to be heard. He speaks to be understood. He wants us to understand what he's saying. He wants us to be sure of him. He wants us to be sure of him. And so scripture is clear. Uh, And now don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that every single passage of scripture uh, is equally clear for us to understand it. Some passages are difficult to understand. uh, And and sometimes we have to really wrestle with what the Bible says and and, and work hard, work up a sweat to try to understand it. I love how, how Luther put it once. He said, I beat against the apostle Paul. I felt like that often in Galatians, where I was just beating my head against a verse when the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, trying so hard to understand what he's saying. And sometimes we have to work hard to understand what the Word of God says, and that's good, that's okay. Sometimes that's the case when we're reading the Bible. But what the clarity of Scripture means is that the central and collective message of Holy Scripture is clear. The central and collective message of Holy Scripture is clear. The Bible clearly reveals who God is, what Jesus has done, how we're saved, and it does so with great simplicity and clarity. It reveals that Christ died for our sins and that he rose again on the third day and that all who trust in him are forgiven and given the gift of eternal life. That's what the Bible declares to us with clarity and simplicity. And this was a very central conviction for the reformers in the 1500s. This is what led to the reformers like Luther and William Tyndale to translate the Bible into the common languages of the people. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church at this time, they claimed that Scripture was too complex for uh, common people who weren't clergy to understand what it says. So they only had Latin translations, which was for like very educated people who learned Latin in seminary, uh, so that common people couldn't read the Bible. Uh, they, they had all their church services in Latin, so that common people couldn't even understand what was going on. And, and the reformers rightly pointed out that this would have been entirely foreign to the writers of the New Testament who used a coin, they used a Koine Greek translation of the Old Testament. They, they wrote these, these works in the New Testament in Koine Greek, which is the common language of the people in the day. They wrote so that people could understand what they were writing. They, they wrote in the common language of the people of the day. And scripture was written to them. God spoke to them, and he spoke to them clearly because he wanted to be heard by them. And the same is true today. Uh, William Tyndale his life's mission was to translate the Bible uh, into English. Uh, he was an English man, and, and he did just that. Uh, many of the translations that, that we use today, the translators used Tyndale's work uh, from the 1500s uh, in order to inform and, 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 and shape their own translations. Uh, and, and understand, Tyndale, this was costly for him. This was very costly for him. For, for, he paid a high price so that we could listen to the Bible being read this morning in our own language. This was costly for him. His life, he, he, he was threatened by the king of England. His life was threatened by the king of England. And so his life was filled with loneliness as he ran from town to town, uh, uh, escaping death uh, here and there, and, and, and living anonymously. The authorities in England and the Roman Catholic Church constantly chased after him and threatened his life. And eventually they caught him, and he was burned at the stake. He was executed for translating the Bible into English. And, and he did so because he was so convicted and convinced that Scripture was clear and that people should have the Bible in their own language. Listen, uh, he was once in an argument 
with a Roman Catholic priest who told Tyndale, listen, the Bible's too hard to understand for common people, and, and, and so you, you, you can't translate the Bible. It's against the, the Pope's laws. You can't do this. And, and what Tyndale said to him in response is, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life for years to come, listen, I will cause a simple plowboy to know more of the scriptures than you do. That's what he said. And Tyndale accomplished just that. He put the Bible into the hands of men and women and children and rich and poor, and and all of them got to hear the Bible read and preached and read the Bible themselves in their own language. And this is, this is wonderful for us to have our kids in here today because I, I want to tell each and every child in here, the Bible is for you. The Bible is for you, boys and girls. Don't let anyone ever tell you that you're not smart enough or that you're not big enough. The Bible is for you. God spoke the Bible and he wants you to understand it so that you can know him. That's, that's very important that we communicate that often. That's why parents, we should read the Bible with our children and help them memorize Bible and teach them the catechism because they need to know what the Bible says. Scripture is clear. God speaks to be heard. Third, God speaks sufficiently. And because God has spoken and his word is true and clear, it is sufficient for us. Uh, Paul says that it's profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete for, listen, may be complete, equipped for every good work, for every good work, complete and equipped for every good work. Meaning the scriptures are sufficient for you. They are sufficient for us. They're all we need as a church and as God's people. They're all we need for us to know what we're to believe and how we're to live together. They're all we need, Paul says, so that God's people may be complete and equipped for every good work. You know, we have other resources. We have good books and, you know, creeds and catechisms and all those things. We use those. It's wonderful. Uh, But when it comes down to it, as a church, we only truly need God's word. We only truly need God's word. And all these other resources are only good insofar as they serve Scripture. Scripture is the only necessary writing for us to know who God is, what he's done in Christ, what we're supposed to believe, and how we're supposed to live together. And beloved, this is why I, if I or another pastor from this church ever gets up here and starts to give you 10 tips on how to get Jesus to make you rich, if we ever get up here and, and, and give you uh, uh, a talk about why paleo, the paleo diet is good or, or chiropractic is helpful, or if we ever get up here and just give you our own opinions on current political issues, you, you should rebuke us. And if that doesn't work, then you should excommunicate us. And if that doesn't work, then you should run away as fast as you can. Do not put up with that garbage. Do not put up with that when God's word is sufficient for you, God's people. It's, 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 this is God's voice. It alone is sufficient and profitable for teaching, for training, for rebuke, for correction, so that God's people, so that you can be equipped for every good work. I heard a while back about a pastor who was asked to preach at a conference one year, uh, and when they went up to the stage to preach, they literally just sat down and didn't say anything. They just sat down and didn't say anything. Uh, I hope they didn't get paid for it. Uh, they just sat there in silence. They didn't get up, didn't say a thing, they didn't preach at all. 
And the reason that they gave, they said, because God didn't say anything to me. I didn't hear God's voice. He didn't speak to me. And I, th- I assume what they meant by that is like they didn't hear a still, small voice uh, or, or an audible voice or something along those lines. Uh, and so they didn't preach. They didn't say anything at all. They just sat there. And many were like super impressed by this person's piety. But if you have a robust understanding of what the Bible is and its sufficiency, its sufficiency, you start to realize that's absolutely bonkers. That's absolutely bonkers. Because God said every single word on these pages. He said every single one of these words so that God's people can be built up and equipped for every good work. The Bible is God's voice from heaven. We don't, we don't need a voice from heaven. We don't need a, a, an audible or, or a still, quiet voice to tell us something. We have God's word. And, and while I, I, I truly believe we should not be opposed to this ongoing guidance and, and, and sensing the Spirit's presence and is guiding us and leading us, I believe wholeheartedly that we should not be opposed to that. I'm the kind of Christian that thinks that that still happens and that I want it more to happen in my life and in our church. But... I want us to realize this morning is that all we really need is the scripture that he inspired. He, he, the spirit authored this in the first place. This is his voice. This is the voice of God from heaven in our hands. We need this word. We need this word. I've been in Christian circles before where there was uh, such a huge emphasis on hearing God's voice in terms of that, that still, you know, quiet leading or, or that, uh, 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 something along those lines, uh, not meaning hearing scripture, but this kind of ongoing guidance. Uh, and, and, and it was such a, you know, such a uh, pressure to hear from God in this way. Uh, and that honestly, it was often just crippling. It would cripple people. It, 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 I honestly saw it just wreck people's faith. And, and, and often, if, if you didn't hear this kind of still, quiet voice, there'd be all sorts of terrible accusations, like you didn't have enough faith, or you must have unconfessed sin, or, or something's wrong with you. But because the Bible is sufficient, because it's the Word of God, we can rest in the reality that, 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 that He has spoken, that we don't need to put this legalistic and, and unnecessary pressure on ourselves, make us feel like we're, like we're, 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 we're insufficient, like our faith is not enough, like we're sinning because we don't hear a, a still quiet voice or an audible voice from heaven or anything like that. God has spoken, the Spirit has spoken in this book, and we can rest in that. This is God's fatherly word to us. It speaks words of comfort when we need comfort. It speaks words of discipline when we need discipline. It speaks words of instruction when we need instruction. His word is sufficient for us. It's sufficient. And then lastly, God speaks with authority. The Bible is not only God's fatherly voice, it's also his kingly decree. He speaks truthfully, clearly, sufficiently, and God speaks with authority. And this is where sort of the big controversy uh, was, was centered on uh, in the Reformation. While Sola Scriptura is a summary of what we've all been discussing so far, the central thing at stake here was whose authority, who's, who, what is our final authority as a church and as Christians? Is it tradition? Is it church councils? Is it the Pope? Is it Scripture? Is it kind of a mix of all these things? Uh, all together, these things are all kind of our final authority mixed together. Uh, it's some confusing sort of mixture. And, 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 and the answer that resounds from Scripture and from the Reformers is that Scripture and Scripture alone is our final authority. 
The, the, the reformers often quoted Isaiah 46 to 8, all flesh is like grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Will stand forever. The word of God and the word of God alone is our final authority as the people of God. That's not to say that there aren't other authorities. The Bible speaks to us about other authorities. We see in the Bible that there are authorities in the home. Parents are authorities in the home. Uh, authorities in the church, like pastors and deacons. Authorities uh, in, in, in employment. You, you have a boss. You have someone that oversees your work. We have authorities in the government, in our nation. These authorities are ordained by God. The Bible tells us that these are authorities that we are to submit to uh, and live under. But the scripture is our final authority. If any parent or pastor or governing authority ever says anything to contradict Scripture or calls God's people to disobey Scripture, Scripture always wins. Scripture always wins because Scripture alone is our final authority. It is the voice of God, and God always has final say. Whatever he promised must be trusted. Whatever he stated must be believed. Whatever he commands must be obeyed. Like Luther, our consciences must always be captive to the word of God. Now, as we close this sermon and open this series, some of what we've addressed this morning, it may be a bit doctrinal, a bit formal, I know, but it's enormously important. It's enormously important. Because it is the basis and the foundation for what we're going to see in the coming weeks when we talk about the glory of God, about the grace of God, about Christ and his work, and about how we're saved through faith in Christ alone. It's it's the, 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 the sure foundation by which we see these wonderful truths that give us assurance of God's grace. Without a true, clear, sufficient, and authoritative word from God, we have no certainty at all whether we actually know God or if the gospel is true. We have no certainty at all. We have no assurance at all that our salvation is secure and fixed in heaven. We have no assurance of that without a true, clear, sufficient, authoritative word from God. Without this certain word from God, we'd have no reason at all to think that we can know anything about this infinitely glorious God. You know, we, we, we would have no assurance at all that his grace has come to us in the person and work of Jesus to rescue us and, and to make us his own. We'd have no basis for our faith. We'd have no basis for our trust in him. We, but since we do have a clear, sufficient, true, authoritative word from God, we can rest in the reality that we've been reconciled to this glorious God. We can rest in the reality that his grace is sufficient for us, that Christ has rescued us. We know who it is we have faith and trust in, and it's God and God alone. Because of what scripture is, based on its authority, you can be certain that you have been saved by God's grace alone, through your faith alone, and because of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. You can be at peace. You can be at rest. You can have assurance. You can be at ease. The word of God can shut the mouth of Satan. It can quiet an accusing conscience. It, it can, it, the, the, the word of God speaks a more sure word than what the world speaks, even when they tell us that we're on the wrong side of history. The word of God is sufficient and true and clear 
and authoritative. Whatever any other voice tells us, we can rest in the reality that we have heard God's voice resounding from his word, saying that we are his, that you are safe in his son and will be forever. We can bet our lives on it because God never lies. He's always true. He's always clear. And what he says is sufficient and authoritative. Praise be to God. Let's pray together.